Hello and welcome to Talking Finance. I'm Alan Kohler. And what a big week it's been in both politics and the markets. So to help us through it, we're joined by Malcolm Farr, National Political Editor for News.com.au. He'll tell me about how Malcolm Turnbull weathered his 30th news poll loss. Alan Oster, Chief Economist at NAB, runs me through the week's economic news, and in particular NAB's business survey. David Robertson, Head of Economic and Market Research at Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, tells us about the markets, which have been jumping all over the place. And finally, Professor Vasilis Kostakos, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne, talks to us about Facebook and what's going on with Mark Zuckerberg and his testimony to Congress this week, which was a big event. Members on my right will cease interjecting. The Leader of the House will cease interjecting. Joining me now is Malcolm Farr, the National Political Editor for news.com.au. Well, Malcolm, uh, as expected, of course, uh, Malcolm Turnbull passed his 30th losing news poll this week. Um, but I just, it seems to me, maybe he came out of the week stronger than he uh, than he entered it, in a way. I mean, everyone kind of came out and supported him. Yes, the, the, the expectation, I, I don't know what the expert, uh, expectations were, you know, that uh, you know, 30th had come out, he would lose head for window in, in tall building, leap out. Of course he was never going to do that. And of course nobody was going to uh, announce that they were going to challenge him. No serious candidate anyway. The 30th poll fed the, uh, the uh, battalion of bitterness, as I might call them, the, the, this troop of, of ex-ministers who've got it in for Malcolm Turnbull, and they are, of course, Tony Abbott, Kevin Andrews, Erica Betts, the AAA gang, but plus uh, uh, Barnaby Joyce, who made that very clear, they've all got a grudge against Malcolm Turnbull and they milked the 30th poll. But in effect, it meant nothing because the suggestion within the party among sensible people there'd be a leadership change now, um, barely a month to the budget, uh, probably within 12 months going to an, elect an election, would be sheer madness. We've seen what happens when the leadership of a party is passed around like a party favour. The ALP demonstrated uh, uh, what a disaster that is, uh, and no one is keen to do that sort of thing again. Is it, it is interesting though that you know that those the AAA, as you say, uh, continue to snipe from the background, and um, it does seem that. Um, uh, that Malcolm Turnbull might have underestimated what Paul Kelly calls the transaction cost of changing leaders. Do you think that they can uh, sort of in some way be put on a united front by the time the election comes around or are they, will they stay divided? I think they'll stay divided. Look, <clears throat> what's interesting, a couple, well, there's several things interesting about this. One thing is the way uh, th this antagonism towards the Prime Minister, is being dressed up as a policy debate. You go to Tony Abbott and, and say, why are you making these remarks that are critical of, let's say, energy policy or whatever? And you say, oh, no, these are the sort of things like immigration we have to talk about. Yeah, that's true, but they're a way of talking about things. Uh, and he's chosen a very public route. So he really is throwing barbs at Mr Turnbull whilst trying to uh, adopt the camouflage of a serious, basic and valid 
policy discussion. We all know he's not doing that. Now, will he keep doing that? I would think so. Increasingly, uh, the AAA gang and others are being isolated within the party. Um, there's uh, no mass support for them. Certainly, Tony Abbott has talked his way out of ever becoming prime minister again and possibly not even becoming a minister again, depending how the next election goes. But he's not going to relent. Having come this far, he can't go backwards. Now, what effect is this having? It's exposing Malcolm Turnbull's impotence in the face of these critics. Uh, yeah, he, maybe he should have handled things better after the last election. Uh, maybe he should have handled things better when he ousted Tony Abbott. Uh, he's not a particularly political sort of chap. You know, we, we all know John Howard used to make sure he spoke to everybody in the party, every backbencher that had a view on things. Uh, he'd sit down and listen to them and then go ahead and do what he was going to do anyway. But no one could say that the Prime Minister hadn't given him or her a hearing. Malcolm Turnbull isn't quite like that, as as you probably know very well. He's, he's sort of... Uh, he sort of goes into a room, a room thinking that uh, I've got this really clever master plan and none of these dolts understand it, so I won't even bother explaining it. I'll just keep going and they'll soon realise how brilliant I am. I'm exaggerating, but it's not far off that. Uh, so he has mishandled um, his advent to power and, and the feelings of those uh, he usurped. But, you know, th th these are grown-ups. They're not kids. Uh, you would think they would uh, have uh, primary loyalties uh, to their party, to their electorates, rather than their own sensitive little uh, sooky feelings. Do, do you think this means, you know, that if they stay a party divided, they will inevitably lose the next election? I think the great problem is the electorate is starting to believe, and certainly Bill Shorten is encouraging this view, that the Liberal Party is more concerned about uh, each other than it is about voters. That Percy and Penelope Punter out there are wondering when Malcolm Turnbull is going to get around to them rather than commenting on what Tony Abbott or Peter Dutton or anybody else is doing. Now, as a journalist, you've got to accept some responsibility for the fact that journalists keep asking uh, the Prime Minister, what he thinks about Peter Dutton, Tony Abbott, etc. But it seems to have sunk through to the Prime Minister that he's got to come up with some uh, projects that uh, will convince voters he's thinking of their needs. The coming budget might do that uh, with a, uh, a, a personal income tax cut, perhaps. We'll wait and see. Uh, we've got a big announcement in Melbourne today of a major... Um, proposal to fund uh, a Tullamarine to the city uh, rail link sometime off in the never never. Um, if, if and when there's state uh, participation and partnership, but you know you can you can often get more value out of a five hundred thousand dollar donation to a local sporting field than a five billion dollar uh, rail project. And and uh, Bill Shorten knows that he's been through. Queensland and Western Australia with Anthony Albanese announcing um, infrastructure pro projects which directly affect people in specific electorates 
uh, and he's leaving behind him the sense that Labor is, uh, is committed to helping those voters rather than talking about what's going on within the Labor Party. I'm joined now by Alan Oster, the Chief Economist at NAB. Well, Alan, um, uh, you had your business survey this week. I guess it wasn't surprising that business confidence fell down to kind of the average level, long-term average, yep. given what's going on in the world at the moment. Were there, were there any surprises in the survey for you? I, I think probably um, we tend to look more on how business actually performed, and that came off a little bit, but from really high levels. So I suppose we were expecting some of that revision down. If I'm looking at the, some of the details in the survey, what we are seeing is a closing of the gap, if you like, between the Western Australian economy and the rest. Um, so the West, for the first time, has got back to long-run trend sort of readings. Um, and within the various industries, a surprise for me was that miners are now the most... Um, or those who are basically saying they've got the best business conditions, and I think that's very much on the back of commodity prices. They're not going to go and open new mines, but given what's uh, sort of happened in terms of their profitability, they're, they're pretty happy. Um, new South Wales was also slightly surprising for me because they basically slowed down a fair bit and it looks like it's in the services sector. Um, so a few slight differences than what I was expecting, but, but fundamentally the survey is still strong and saying there's good momentum in the economy. Any industries going backwards at the moment? No, for the first time, I think it's about four years, every industry is sort of... Um, at or above its long-run trend. Um, if you're going to say which are the the less performing uh, sectors, it's still discretionary retail and wholesale. So we're still seeing the consumer basically struggling in terms of uh, spending in the shops, if you like. And um, uh, you, you sort of seem to be discounting the business confidence a bit. I mean, is that um, is that simply because it's you'd expect it to be where it is, or because um, it's not that important? Well, I, I think it's important, but um, it, it, we have found in the past that actual outcomes are more important than piece, people's confidence. If, if you've got low confidence, then you don't invest and you don't employ, and so therefore it's an issue. Um, but um, what tends to be driven um, is that it goes from actual outcomes to confidence rather than the other way around. Um, so confidence, the, the only thing I didn't like about the confidence was, again, in this non-retail, in other words, the services sector uh, in the retail space. Um, it's the weakest of any. So they're sort of saying business conditions in, um, if, I, if I can say, non-retail consumption is, um, is is starting to weigh on New South Wales and in terms of confidence, they've got the lowest reading of any confidence that we've seen. And anywhere, is that because is, of, it, it, do you think that's because of house prices? It could be an element of that. I think it's also an element of uh, the weakness in the retail space maybe, spend, maybe moving into um, the non-retail space so people, to the extent they can, will basically not 
buy as much uh, utilities and, and that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's early days. It's still okay, but it's um, noticeably different. So, I mean, not that long ago, New South Wales was the number one performing state on just about every measure, whereas now um, it's Victoria, Queensland, and New, New South Wales sort of is down there with Western Australia and South Australia. One of the important bits of your survey is always capacity utilisation. What in this yep. survey about capacity utilisation, what, what does it tell you about what's going to happen with employment in the future? It, well, what it sort of says is um, capacity utilisation was pretty much unchanged at 82 point. Uh, and so that's sort of saying it's about one point above long-run average. And when we look at employment, the readings that we've got are consistent with something like 20,000 jobs per month, which would be enough to bring unemployment down. Um, and so the survey is saying in, for the labour market outlook, um, it's going to be improving. Uh, particularly in employment anyway. And if you, as long as you don't get the participation rate continuing to go up, then you'll see unemployment come down. Just finally, did you get anything out of Philip Lowe's speech yesterday? Uh, well, Phil was basically just reiterating uh, what he said for a while. Um, I mean, the, the themes were that the West is not as bad as what it was, so he used our data to say that. And then he also said on monetary policy, uh, look, the next move is going to be up, not down. They haven't had a move up for seven years, and so it might surprise some people, but um, the fact that rates are more likely to go up and down is saying something about what he thinks is happening in the economy. I'm joined now by David Robertson, Bendigo Bank's Head of Economic and Market Research. David, the market market's... Volatility has certainly gone up. Uh, Mr. Trump has engineered that, but the market, I suppose traders don't know which way to turn. One minute they're, uh, they're worried about trade war, and now it's about the Syria um, the possibility of a Syria strike. Where do you think things stand now, the market in the market? Yeah, absolutely, and it's clearly geopolitical developments rather than looking at the economic data that's driving the markets at the moment. But uh, just when we got comfortable, when was it Tuesday with Xi Jinping's comments? Um, on at the BOAL forum, which would seem to placate the concerns about trade. Now suddenly it's Russia that's that's in focus, and um, what were some of Trump's tweets that missiles are heading for Syria and that Russia should be ready. Um, so you know clearly that's that's taken over in the geopolitical rankings as uh, as the number one issue right now. Um, but, you know, as for the impact on the markets, clearly it's it's promoted a bit of a risk on, uh, sorry, uh, it's moved the risk on, on tone to risk off, and it certainly um, hasn't helped stocks. But maybe the most important part of that is that it's pushed the oil price higher. So oil's up to, I think, its highest level since late 2014, and that might be the, the, the short-term impact that we need to digest the consequences of. Do you think that after all the sort of jumping around that the market is... Uh uh, expensive or cheap at the moment, or roundabout where it ought to be? I suppose if you look at the... I think that's probably, in terms of stock markets, um, probably need to answer that in terms of where the US market is and Australia's a slightly different equation. Um, certainly, the US uh, stock market, having you know given up 10% of its gains, uh, now sitting pretty much in the middle of that range, um, it's 
you need to be a bit careful, I think, until we break back above January's highs. Um, but the, in terms of expense, the PE ratios, other than some of the stocks like uh, Amazon and so on, don't look ridiculously high. Um, I, I think I'm more concerned about the length of the bull market, the fact that it's nine years since it kicked off in the States, rather than just the outright PE ratios. Um, so you know, I'd be surprised if the US market's got more than, well, 12, 18 months to run, if, if it hasn't peaked already. Um, but the Australian market's pretty different sort of equation. We don't have the, the tech stocks to, to drive some of those price gains. So I'm not sure that we're expensive, um, but I suspect the US is. Yeah, you mentioned the tech stocks. I mean, one of the factors that's been uh, driving the volatility in the market has been the um, the travails of Facebook and the way that that seems to have infected the rest of uh, the uh, big tech stocks. Where do you where do you think they sit now? They fell down and they've recovered a bit. Um, uh, what's what's your view on that factor now? Well, it's interesting that Facebook shares have recovered after Zuckerberg's uh, congressional hearing. So uh, he was certainly put um, um, put under the pump, but he appears to have handled those those um, uh, all those comments and that, that grilling pretty well. So the fact that the, those shares have recovered is probably a, a reasonable sign. Um, you know, tech stocks. Well, they make up what about half of the Nasdaq and about a quarter of the S and P 500. So clearly, that's part of the reason that U.S. stocks have been doing so well. Um, as to from here, I, you know, I, I think um, I think they'll they'll continue to drive the market. As I say, I, I suspect that the bull market's got a little bit further to to play out. Um, but I'll, I'll be more comfortable in that view when we break back above the highs that we hit in January. Just looking at the Australian market, um, uh, you mentioned that, you know, obviously our market has been held back a bit. We don't have the tech stocks and we've got the banks that have had headwinds. Um, mm. Do you have any particular views on, on the banks themselves and, and in particular the, the impact of the Royal Commission? I mean, obviously you, you work for a bank, um, uh, but uh, not one yeah. of the big four. Yeah, oh, that's right. And so the the Royal Commission's going to... Um, well, it, it, it'll take its its course, and clearly the the financial stocks have have um, been under pressure during that uh, that initial process. Uh, the, the finance part of the ASX 200 is is what off about eight um, percent from the highs, I think, and and the industrials are under a little bit of pressure as well. Um, so you know you'd expect once that uh, has uh, run its course that. Um, that will continue. That will perhaps return to looking at the fundamentals. I mean, the, the, uh, the we've got a very well-run financial system here in Australia, and um, it, there's there's good value in uh, a range of finance stocks. They they pay a good dividend. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a pullback, and it's um, it's going to take time to, to play out. But uh, just at the moment, the energy and the resource stocks look to be where the, uh, uh, the, you know, the rotations are, are heading through to them. And, and that probably makes sense, given not just where oil is, but where the commodity cycle is. Joining me now is Professor Vasilis Kostakos, Professor of Human-Computer Interaction at the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. Professor Kostakos, it was interesting to see um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg sitting in front of this, um, the Congress this week, sitting on his cushion. 
being grilled. I mean, what, uh, do you think that the we're in we're in a sort of a tipping point, some sort of uh, big change here um, that's going to take place both with Facebook, possibly other social media, or do you think it'll blow over? Uh, no, I think it's a it's a tipping point, and it's uh, one that's overdue. Um, I think people have now realized that uh, we need adequate policies to make sure people's uh, data and information is protected uh, to a reasonable extent. Um, I believe so far the technology by itself uh, is not capable of uh, uh, protecting uh, information and making sure it's not uh, passed on to third parties in inappropriate ways. So that is something we cannot control or enforce purely by technology. And therefore, we need to introduce policies that will deter people from uh, taking these inappropriate actions. So what do you think needs to be done? And what? Do, and separately, I guess, what do you think will be done? Right. So um, I think it's interesting to, to describe that so far, uh, the way this information has been handled, people's personal information has been handled using effectively a code of honor. Basically, these third-party applications get their hands on, on people's information, and then they promise that they will uh, treat this information appropriately, and they promise to delete it at some point. Um, now, Facebook really has no technical means of checking whether those promises are fulfilled. So one thing that Facebook is now doing is saying, well, we're going to monitor for suspicious activity, and if if we determine that a, a company needs full auditing, we will carry that out. And if an organization refuses to be audited, then they will be banned from Facebook. So um, uh, basically, they're, they're kind of really clamping down on uh, enforcing these new policies and making sure that people uh, play by this honor code. And they make it very clear that if you, if you lie about what you've done with data, then uh, you will be banned from the platform. But that's what um, that's what Facebook is doing already, right? Yes. So they've started doing this. Uh, they're now calling for more fuller audits. Um, they have added to their bug bounty program uh, kind of uh, rewards for identifying cases where personal data is misused. So there's now financial reward to identify this kind of situations. Uh, they're adding some other uh, uh, mechanisms. For example, if a Facebook user has not interacted with a, a third-party app for uh, more than 30 days, then that app stops getting access to people's information. So what, what regulations do you think I mean, do you, I mean, do you think that the, the Congress or the uh, the lawmakers will introduce regulations to simply reinforce what Facebook is already doing, or will they go further? Uh, I think, it's, uh, of course, it's up to each government to determine what regulation is appropriate. I, I honestly don't think Facebook can do much more technically at this point. Uh, it's as simple as uh, me sending you a file and making you promise that you're not going to give that file to anyone else. Uh, it's really hard for me to check uh, whether you're doing that, abiding by your promise or not. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, there's many ways forward. Um, I would like to highlight a very interesting uh, detail, which is that the, the, the insights that uh, this company, Cambridge Analytica, was using is, uh, is actually not the raw data that was collected from Facebook. 
So there is an issue that uh, hasn't been really discussed yet, and it's a bit of a technical issue. But basically, once I get my hand on uh, my hands on uh, data from 50 million users, and I do some analysis and I do some models, and I figure out, for example, that people who like French fries are likely to vote Republican. Uh, once I, I start gaining those insights, I do not really need the raw data anymore. I have these statistical models uh, that help me predict and understand people's behavior. So the question really is, what happens to these models? Because they're not the raw data, they're not even metadata. Uh, so I think uh, being very clear about what happens to those statistical models, who owns them, and are these third-party companies um, required to delete those models as well after they've deleted data? I think that's a really important question. It is interesting that um, uh, Facebook's been using this data for years to uh, allow advertisers to better target the advertising. And in fact, that's what based Facebook's business model is based on. Uh, the ability to target advertising very precisely, more precisely than has ever been able to be done. But it's really only uh, since it turns out that Facebook helped, Facebook data helped Donald Trump get elected, that Mark Zuckerberg's really got into trouble. Um, yeah, that is true. Um, political parties have been using Facebook for a long time to, to advertise and promote both both explicitly and implicitly. Um, but this also happens on television and radio and the web. So, uh, yeah, perhaps there needs to be a discussion on whether Facebook should ban political advertisement altogether, or maybe uh, we need to think very carefully about uh, what kind of advertisements go on Facebook in general. And the other thing is, uh, in Europe, they've got um, uh, the general data protection regulation, um, which uh, up to this point, America has not really wanted to, or has, there hasn't been any discussion in America going down that path where the GDPR requires permission uh, for, on people like Google and Facebook uh, for the use of the data. Um, do you think that America might introduce their own version of GDPR? Um, it's possible. I, um, uh, it's, it's a very tricky question. So, uh, uh, to be honest, I'm not sure under the current leadership of the U.S. what the outcome might be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, not, I'm really not sure, but it's definitely a possibility. Happy birthday, Jimmy Destry, who turned 64 today. Now, you've probably never heard of Jimmy, but he was the rock keyboardist in Blondie. And uh, here's Heart of Glass, which he was behind. That's it for Talking Finance for another week. I'm Alan Kohler. Have a great week ahead.